Hi, this is Lucinda. I'm a healthcare accreditation coordinator as well as an RN. I have no affiliation with the Joint Commission at all, but today I'm going to talk to you about something very important. Universal protocol, something we are all familiar with. Wrong site surgical errors occur for two basic reasons, misinformation and misperception. Not all wrong surgery errors are identified and prevented by universal protocol, I'm sorry to say. Upstream problems include errors contaminating the information flowing into the surgeon's decision-making and planning processes from radiology, pathology, transcription errors, and so forth. Downstream problems can result from getting lost anatomically, uh, specifically with reference to a spinal level, rib level, or specific skin lesion. The ability of the universal protocol to prevent wrong surgery can be strengthened by verifying all preoperative documents with their primary source for critical information. In addition, everyone on the operating team should maintain focus and memory of the intended procedure throughout the operation, not just during the timeout. You know, we do this a lot by going over it several times. We usually write it on a dry erase board so you can look back at it and just in case you forget or you're unfocused, you know, things of this nature. So the universal protocol for preventing wrong site, wrong procedure, and wrong person surgery applies to all surgical and non-surgical invasive procedures. Evidence indicates that procedures that place the patient at risk include those that involve general anesthesia or deep sedation, although other procedures may also affect patient safety. Hospitals can enhance safety by correctly identifying the patient the appropriate procedure, and the correct site of the procedure. Universal protocol is based on these principles. Wrong person, wrong site, and wrong procedure surgery can and must be prevented. A robust approach using multiple complementary strategies is necessary to achieve the goal of always conducting the correct procedure on the correct person at the correct site. Active involvement and use of the effective communication among all members of the procedure team is, an important, is important for success. To the extent possible, the patient and family needs to be involved in the process. Consistent implementation of the standardized protocol is, the, is most effective in achieving safety. And it's well known that the universal protocol is implemented most successfully in hospitals with a culture that promotes teamwork and where individuals feel empowered to protect patient safety. Basically, if you see something, say something. So let's talk about pre-procedure verification. The pre-procedure verification is an ongoing process of information gathering and confirmation. The purpose of the pre-procedure verification process is to make sure that all relevant documents and rele uh, related information or equipment are as follows available prior to the start of the procedure, correctly identified, labeled, and matched to the patient's identifiers, reviewed and are consistent with the patient's expectations and with the team's understanding of the intended patient, procedure, and site. Um, Pre-procedure verification may occur at more than one time and place um, before the procedure. 
It is up to the hospital to decide when this information is collected and by which team member, but it is best to do it when the patient can be involved. Some of these possibilities may include when the procedure is scheduled, on the phone, in the office, at the time of pre-admission testing and assessment, at the time of admission or entry into the facility for the procedure, before the patient leaves the pre-procedure area or enters the procedure room. And a lot of safety checklists in the past have covered all of these areas. And you would have to initial as you went along, which was funny if you were in a small facility because you basically have initials all the way through it to the end, especially if you circulated as well. At my last facility, did we have these questions in our electronic health record? Absolutely we did. But we were also running diagnostics on the actual sheets. So we would have paper sheets that would complete this process as well and make sure that everybody was doing their part. And then we would track and trend to see um, if everybody was participating in these things. And it was pretty interesting. So as a facility, implement a pre-procedure process to verify the correct procedure for the correct patient at the correct site. The patient is involved in this verification process when possible. Identify the items that must be available for the procedure and the use of a standardized list to verify their availability. At the minimum, these items should include the following. Again, the relevant documentation. This is going to be like your history and physical, signed procedure consent form, nursing assessment, and pre-anesthesia assessment. So, you know, I hate to say it because I don't want to put everything on the circulator, but as a circulator, these are things I would check before I rolled the patient back to the OR. Um, labeled diagnostic and radiology test results. I would also look for this as well. And any required blood products, implant devices, or special equipment for the procedure. Again, as a circulator, I would make sure all of this is in the room. Um, along with my very awesome OR tech that worked with me. The expectation of this element of performance is that the standardized list is available and is used consistently during the pre-procedure verification. It is not necessary to document that the standardized list was used for each patient. Again, when I'm talking of this, I'm speaking of like a paper separate form that eventually would go into the electronic health record, even though those questions are already covered. Um, this was just an extra step but also a necessary step that reduced our risk in the OR, like we actually proved it with our research. Our particular safety um, sheets also made, um, made sure that the doctor was definitely part of the timeout and that the entire team stopped what they were doing during that timeout, and also that the doctor had to do a debrief before he left the room at the end of the procedure. But let's move along. We want to mark the procedure site. Marking the procedure site is one way to protect patients. Patient safety is enhanced when a consistent marking process is used throughout the hospital. Site marking is done to prevent errors when there is more than one possible location for a procedure. Examples include different limbs, fingers, toes, lesions, level of the spine, and organs. In cases where bilateral structures are removed, such as the tonsils or ovaries, the site does not need to be marked. Responsibility for marking the procedure site is a hotly debated topic. One position is that since the licensed independent practitioner is accountable for the procedure, they should mark the site. That's how I feel about it, but that's just my two cents. 
Another position is that the individuals should be able to mark the site in the interest of workflow and efficiency. There is no evidence that patient safety is affected by the job function of the individual who marks the site. The incidence of wrong site surgery is low enough that it is unlikely that the valid data on this subject will ever be available. Furthermore, there is no clear consensus in the field on who should mark the site. Rather than remaining silent on the subject of site marking, the Joint Commission sought a solution that supports the um, purpose of the site mark. The mark is a communication tool about the patient for members of the team. Therefore, the individual who knows the most about the patient should mark the site. In most cases, that will be the person performing the procedure. Recognizing the complexities of the work processes support invasive procedures. The Joint Commission believes that delegation of site marking to another individual is acceptable in limited situations as long as the individual is familiar with the patient and involved in the procedure. The individuals would include the following. Individuals who are permitted through a postgraduate education program to participate in the procedure, a licensed individual who performs duties requiring collaborative or, you know, if they need to be supervised, with a licensed independent practitioner. These individuals include advanced practice registered nurses and physician assistants. The licensed independent practitioner remains fully accountable for all aspects of the procedure, even when the site marking is delegated. So what are you supposed to do if the patient doesn't want to get marked? <laughs> a written alternative process should be in place at your facility for patients who refuse site marking or when it is technically or anatomically impossible or impractical to mark the site. For example, like uh, mucosal surfaces, you know, the insides of your body. <laughs> Examples of other situations that involve alternative processes include uh, minimal access procedures treating a lateralized internal organ, you know, something of this nature, teeth, premature infants for whom the mark may cause a permanent tattoo. So moving along, <laughs> let's talk about a timeout. A timeout should be performed before the procedure. The purpose of the timeout is to conduct a final assessment that the correct patient, site, and procedure are identified. This requirement focuses on those minimum features of a timeout. Some believe that it is important to conduct the timeout before anesthesia for several reasons. And we always tried to do this as much as we could. Because um, you want to include the involvement of the patient. A hospital may conduct the timeout before anesthesia or may add another timeout at that time. I mean, because it's hard, like, you know, a lot of time anesthesia is in there before the doctor's in there. So you're putting the patient under it's your last chance to ask the patient before they're put out. However, your surgeon is not in the room yet always for that, for that time period. During a timeout, activities are suspended to every extent possible. So that means freeze. Don't move. Don't do anything. You are to be still during the timeout. Um, think of it as a game of freeze tag. Um, it, this is so that members can focus on the active confirmation of the patient, site, and procedure. A designated member of the team initiates the timeout. This is usually your circulator. And it includes active communication among all relevant members of the procedure team. The procedure is not started until all questions or concerns are resolved. 
The timeout is most effective when it is conducted consistently across the hospital or organization. Implementation of the Joint Commission's universal protocol should increase patient safety and decrease surgical errors. Knowledge and stringent implementation of the universal protocol will implement a dedicated process that can result in a significant reduction of errors. Also, you need to consider when you're marking the site, um, is it going to be prepped after that in the OR later? And will it need to be remarked? Because let's face it, sometimes these marks can wash off depending on what kind of prep that the surgeon prefers. Just something to think about. I hope you all have a wonderful day and that you get something out of this. Um, this is definitely a national patient safety goal and something to be very much paid attention to. So thank you for your time.